At this time, we will turn in God's holy word to the book of Titus, uh, Paul's pastoral letter to one of the first um, ministers within that first uh, century of the Christian church, Titus. We read at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, and then from chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. In chapter 1, Titus holds forth the qualifications for elders, how they must be men beyond reproach, godly men who know God's word, and so forth. For indeed, as we will see in our scripture passage, there are many teachers who will not want to proclaim God's word truly and lead God's people astray. So having said that, we will read at Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 10, the words of the Apostle Paul, the words of our God. For there are many who are um, insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish, Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, here comes our focus for our sermon, verse 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every, for any good work. And then at chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has, <clears throat> has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one... And now to the focus of our sermon this afternoon from Lord's Day 33. You may turn to that with me on page uh, 549. I know some of you remember last Sunday I preached from the first three questions of that Lord's Day, question 88 to 90, concerning true repentance and conversion, and I left Lord's Day uh, 33 verse 91 for this afternoon. So we'll focus on Lord's Day 91. What are good works? But we'll begin to read at question 88. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love, and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God, and according, or sorry, and to his glory, 
and not those based on our own opinion or the precepts of men. So far we read from our Heidelberg Catechism. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you would ask the question, what is good works, you would get all kinds of answers, all kinds of thoughts and opinions And if you would ask people what are the basis for their answers as to what they think is good, you'd get all kinds of different answers again. And that's how it is with the subject of human goodness or what is good, what is not good. You you get all kinds of opinions, all kinds of answers. This whole concept of human goodness is a very relative kind of a thing. It's a very fluid, fluid situation. It keeps on changing and changing. You know, I remember not so long ago when all the stores were closed on Sunday in Canada. And uh, you could drive to church and the parking lots were empty. But some years back, uh, the stores were opened and now every store is open on Sunday. Well, is that a good thing? Is that better than what it was before? Is that a good work? Once upon a time, gambling was considered a plague on society, but now every convenience store has a raft of lottery tickets that you can buy and the whole idea is please spend your money and buy your own happiness well is that a good idea is is that a good thing is that a a good work a question um, question 91 is but what are good works Is there an absolute standard that we can look to or turn to to judge a human behavior or social customs or even the laws of the land for that matter? They too, in a sense, are are under our judgment and our assessment. Our theme this afternoon, congregation, but what are good works? It's a question, and the answer we have is only those things which are done out of true faith, that first Second, that which is done in accordance to the law of God. And then thirdly, what is to his glory, and not what is based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. You know, people do all sorts of things and come up with all kinds of notions as to what they think is right, and, and they justify their actions, and society must sort of bend to their own thoughts and to their own behaviors and, and find it acceptable to them. That's been the whole method behind the the gay rights movement these last 30, 40 years. So we must simply accept their new lifestyle because they deem it to be good and society seems to be judging that it's okay as well. So is that now a good work? Is that how we think? Certainly not, congregation. We know that God's holy word is the only absolute standard for truth and hence for all human goodness. It's God who decides what's good and what is bad. It's his word that tells us what is right and what is not right, not human opinion, and not the precepts of men. That's what the catechism teaches us. Precept, children, a precept is simply a a general rule of action. For example, in our country, it's deemed to be a good thing that September 1st or thereabouts, all the kids go back to school. That's a precept. That's a, a good thing. But here's another precept that all women ought to have free access to abortion in Canada, and nobody should be able to stop them. That, too, has become a precept of men in our nation. 
Is that a good thing? Well, of course we know it's not. But that's what we mean by the word precept of men. It's so subjective. It's so dependent upon the way people are thinking at a given time and in a given culture. Well, what are good works? Our catechism tells us first only those things which are done out of a true faith. A true faith which says that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God and that he is the only Savior of the world. That's what true faith says and confesses. Or true faith says the Bible alone is God's holy word and that his word is unfallible, that his word is authoritative, that his word is unchanging, and that his word is all-sufficient for all we need to know to honor God and to serve him rightly. True faith believes that God is the only source of all wisdom and of goodness. True faith says God, he alone is good, and in him there is no evil. But true faith congregation is not simply something that's kind of academic that we kind of have here up in our head. True faith is not simply a theological construct that can be discussed in the seminary classroom. No, true faith is moral at its very core in nature. True faith has to do with what is right and wrong and what is good and what is bad. And true faith knows what these things are and can distinguish them. Perhaps you remember from last Sunday afternoon how in question 88 to 90 we learned about how true repentance or conversion to faith in Christ has a life-changing effect for the good. Not the bad, but for the good or for the righteous, not the evil. Your faith in Jesus Christ, as we saw there in question, uh, question 88, involves the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. And, and what does that look like? Well, it is to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and to flee from it. And it is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. It uses that description of what is good as opposed to what is bad. <clears throat> By a true faith, our lives and our hearts are changed for the good when we become Christians or believers. Uh, God begins to sanctify us, you see. He, he begins to actually change our hearts and to, and to uh, make us holy so that we remain no longer an unclean thing or, or to remain uh, impure. Now, of course, we don't gain perfection. We still sin in this life. The old man still must be still dying in us all the time. And yet there's that newness of life that pervades the believer. He becomes a new man, a new person in Jesus Christ, a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. He is able to begin to do good works. Well, what are they? Only those things which are done out of true faith, true faith in our triune God. <clears throat> now let's go to the book of Titus to chapter 1, where Paul is is busy there instructing Titus concerning what that godliness and true faith looks like. And in verse 15, he, 
He introduces the subject of, of, of a Christian, of a believer, and notice how he calls him the pure, the pure. Verse 15, he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He uses the language of the pure to describe a believer, one who is born again. Jesus uses the same language in the Beatitudes where he says, uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Paul, now, now, now Paul says here to the pure, all things that God has created are pure as well. Paul here is busy <coughs> telling Titus, he's instructing him about the spiritual errors of the, of the false teachers, those who are practicing and disseminating Jewish myths and the commands of people, he says in verse 14, he is speaking about these people because nothing that they're doing, nothing that they receive from God, they deem to be pure because they are themselves defiled, God says there. And one of the things that they are teaching with their Jewish myths is the idea that moral goodness, eh, purity, Moral goodness or purity <clears throat> is an external thing that we can obtain by observing ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. For example, the importance of eating clean food, those things that God has designated to be clean, and such, of course, it was in the Old Covenant, but now we are in the New. Added to that, to that precept were further human commands by these teachers uh, telling the people there that they also had to make sure that they ate with, with washed hands. They could not eat any food with unwashed hands. They could not eat food that was from an unwashed plate or drink something from an unwashed cup. They had to even make sure the couches they sat on were washed or purified. Otherwise, themselves they themselves were spiritually contaminated. <clears throat> And yet at the same time, these teachers, these deceivers, were refusing to believe that Jesus Christ was God's only begotten Son or Savior who died for sinners, who alone makes us pure, who alone causes us to be cleaned of our moral filth as we believe on him. And thus, therefore, only through him and faith in him can our works actually be designated as Good works. You see the connection there. True believers do not obtain that inward spiritual purity or human goodness by simply outward compliance to religious laws or ceremonies. And you know what? Even God's faithful people in the Old Testament, they knew that. They knew that spiritual purity or goodness was a matter of the heart of a true faith and a true trusting in Jehovah God and all the promises he made concerning uh, the Messiah for their salvation. <clears throat> they knew that purity of the heart had to do with God's work, God's spirit working in them. <clears throat> and that's kind of the idea we see here in uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. For example, like the food that God now gives to us, it is all pure or his Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us, why he is pure. And Jesus Christ, his only son given to us, is pure. His blood is pure. God's holy law that convicts us of sin, why, that's pure too. Paul says to the pure, all things are pure. That's the idea we have here. 
But, then Paul says, but to the defiled, verse 15, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, he says nothing is pure. Nothing that God would give them, his will, his Holy Spirit, his word, his son, nothing is pure to the, to the undefiled because their minds and their consciences are defiled, he says, defiled. And though they profess to know God, Paul says they deny him. How? By their works. Their works are not good. Their bad works claim they show they really don't know God, even though they say they do. They deny him by their works, says Paul. And then he adds, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, the point here is that they are defiled and unbelieving because everything that they would deem as coming from God or having to receive from God, they deem to not be pure in their own eyes, and therefore God deems them to not be good either in their works. Their very consciences, that mechanism within by which they judge things and determine things and assess things, their conscience, Paul says, is itself defiled. And guess what? Their works show it. That their consciences and minds indeed are defiled. With their own minds, they think, they form opinions, they act. But God says they are defiled. They really are unclean. And they are detestable. Again, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for good works. Unfit here means they are disqualified. They are unable to do good works acceptable to God because what's missing? What's missing? There's no true faith. They claim to know God but they automatically deny that very thing by the works they do. There is no true faith, there is no true life or purity in their hearts. Their God-denying works show their God-denying hearts. And how would you define a God-denying heart? Well, a heart that's got no faith, plain and simple. No true faith, no good works could flow out of them. And Paul even says that very thing. He says they are unfit for any good work. I'll give you an example. Think of the high school teacher teaching his class, telling all his students, there is no God, like we sung in Psalm 53. There is no God. And that means evolution is the only explanation for reality only explanation for your existence and the stars and the moon and the whole nine yards. Evolution is the explanation for everything that now is because there is no God. And that also means there is no absolute truth. There's nothing you can ultimately say, well, because of this standard, that is right and this is wrong. And so here we have this teacher teaching, all this teaching being grounded in a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and in a denial of God's holy word so that nothing he says, nothing he does, nothing that he would receive from God would ever be considered pure in his sight. Why? Because his conscience is defiled and therefore he is detestable in God's sight. He cannot do any good work. What's absent in this man who says there is no God and evolution describes everything? He has no true faith. It is plain and simple, absent from his whole perspective, his whole view, his whole attitude. And indeed, if you would ask him, he would say, if there is a God, I want no part of him. I can live without him. I'm fine without him. I hate the idea of an absolute God who is holy, who is the one who is the source of all wisdom and truth, never mind grace and forgiveness. Congregation, what are good works? Only those things which are done out of true faith. But then we move on secondly, a second criteria. Only those things which are done in accordance with God's holy law. Now I would humbly submit to you that this really is a no-brainer. I guess you know what I mean by that. This is a no-brainer. And yet it seems so many people who claim to be Christians are not using their brains at all because they are justifying whatever lifestyle they live and they still want to call themselves Christians. Well, perhaps it's not so much that they lack brains, but they're just plain ignorant of God's holy law that there is such a thing as his holy law, which has very much to do with our faith. And even if they would know that there is this thing called God's holy law, they're acting perhaps not out of ignorance, but just simple, plain old disobedience. And they are self-deceived. Again, let's look at First Titus 1.16. They profess to know God. And how many people aren't there out there with that description? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The key word here, congregation, is the word disobedient. They are the ones who simply do not want to listen to God's word. They don't care what it says. They don't care how many holy laws he got. If those laws pinch my lifestyle and, and con- contradict what I want to do, well, then I'm not going to obey it. Plain and simple, it's disobedience. They think their faith does not have the necessarily attached moral laws from Christ. That as they keep them, they are showing themselves to be a new creation in him. And such thinking, of course, does violence to God's holy law and to his holy character and to his will. For example, I'll give, I'll give you another, a few other examples. The fourth commandment says, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. That's not a human precept, that's God's holy law. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. But if I decide to go and buy and sell anyways, because I just don't have time during the rest of the week, and I've got to squeeze it in on Sunday, and I wind up skipping church when I want, then by my works, I am denying that I know God. Or, for example, God's holy law says I'm not supposed to bear false witness. 
But if I still lie and I still cheat in order to save my skin and and to accomplish what I want to do and to uh, justify my sinful actions, if I still lie and bear false witness, then my own works show that I'm denying God. Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for good works because they deny him by their works. And that's disobedience to his holy law. Our own disobedience sets aside God's holy law. And that makes us detestable in God's sight and unfit for any good work. That answers the catechism question we're dealing with. Good works are those things that only are in conformity with his holy will, his holy law. That's what makes your good deeds good. Your standard for determining this is not your opinion. It's not you having gone to get a college degree. It's, it's not the precepts of men. But it's God's holy law, these precious Ten Commandments that you are abiding by as much as you can with the Holy Spirit working within you. Didn't Jesus himself say, if you love me, keep my commandments? In congregation, that's what New Testament Christianity looks like. This is how New Testament Christian faith operates and, 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 and swings into gear and moves. It is by, if you love me, keep my commandments. What else might God's holy law look like? We, we, of course, speak of the Ten Commandments, but they are fleshed out countless times throughout the scriptures in very relevant and uh, important kinds of ways. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. Ah, there, that smells like the law, doesn't it? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There you have it. Having been brought to salvation, we now are trained to renounce. Coming to faith in Christ, we're called to that new obedience to God's holy law. I guess I ask the question, do we really, really get it when we know that True and saving faith in Jesus Christ calls us to a life of obedience to God's holy law at the same time. How do we know this? Unless, Paul says, the grace of God that brings salvation appears to you and you by a true faith believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you set your heart now on being trained to live in a way that renounces or puts to death ungodliness and worldly passions so that we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This present age, which is a wicked and a perverse generation it was then, it certainly is the case still today. We are now to be renouncing that ungodliness 
and to set our hearts upon obeying the law of Christ and the law of God. You might say, how can I do that? Well, please, we cannot dismiss. We must count upon the power of the Holy Spirit by which we were made new creatures in the first place. There we have the ability to begin to live holy and sanctified lives, to, to do good works, that which is pleasing to our God. And certainly it involves living according to the law of God. <clears throat> Congregation, I submit to you, this is no kind of spiritual <clears throat> rocket science, but it's simply knowing and simply obeying the holy will, the holy law of the Most High God who created us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, God's holy law we show by keeping it. Knowing him, we show it by keeping his holy will. And that's the same thing as saying, Christ is in me because his law I do delight in. The basis for truth for, for, for uh, good works, congregation, it's got to be true faith first off. And secondly, the second criteria, it's got to be God's holy will. It sure does. And what's the sum and the substance of our good works in? Why indeed it is that holy law of God. <clears throat> Make that your life's aim and your character your passion, something that's so essential to, to pray for and to practice every day. But then finally, what are good works? One last thing, the catechism's answer answers, it is everything that is done to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of man. And here the Apostle Paul also gives us a great incentive in this second chapter and a great hope so that we realize how, how, how fitting and how sensible it is that the third criteria for doing good works must that they must be done to the glory of God. And notice what Paul says here in verse, uh, in verse 13 after he speaks to us about being trained to renounce ungodliness and so forth. He says, waiting for a blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Shouldn't this be the greatest motivating factor for us as Christians to know that our blessed God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming in all his glory with his supreme majesty and holiness, the glory of his holiness, the glory of his grace and his power and his might. We cannot begin to fathom such a thing. But our great God and Savior is coming again in all his glory. What a reason for, for Christians to live, knowing that this God, my Savior, is coming in all his glory. Uh, then I not to do all things in such a way that I... I, I manifest or I enhance or I show something of the glory of the one who is coming and show it in my own life as I live for him. Yes, that makes sense, doesn't it? It sure does. 
should we not then do all things for his glory? And that, all, and that fundamentally makes our good works good because we are seeking to glorify God with our lives, with our hearts, with our minds. We have the great incentive here to do exactly that. For Paul says that we are to be waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and why? Well, who, he gave himself, Paul says, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, there's that word pure, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. There you have it, zealous for good works. Just think of it, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to redeem you from all lawlessness, that you will become lawful people, God-obeying people. That's, that's one of the, the chief aims of, of the Christian faith, to make us new people, to bear that image of righteousness and holiness and the knowledge of God. Christ redeemed us for this so we become zealous, eager, that means happy, ready, willing to do good works, works of faith, works of law-keeping, works of promoting God's glory. I'll ask you one more question. Could those who profess to know God, yet deny him by their works, could they possibly do anything for God's glory so that God could find their works acceptable? And I say no to both questions. No, because to deny God, even though you confess you know him, to deny God by your works is a complete contradiction of glorifying him. Just like disobeying God's commandments outwardly is a complete contradiction of glorifying him. That makes sense, doesn't it? And yet that's what we see so often. We know of countless people who live very decent lives. They don't hurt anybody. They give you their shirt off their back for you. They're very nice neighbors. And yet they never think of doing any of this to glorify God. He's not in any of their thoughts, that's for sure. If you would try and introduce the subject to them, you'll get the cold shoulder pretty quick and say, move on, buddy, I'm not interested. They will not consider to do anything to glorify God. They deny him in their thoughts. None of the things of God are holy to them at all or pure, but they are despised. And so to sum up again, they are unfit for any good work, Paul says. You see, unbelievers cannot conceive of glorifying God. Their conscience is defiled. They are not a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old things have not gone away in their life. Behold, nothing has become new in their life. We use Paul's words to the Corinthians. All the old things are still there in their life. 
and they uh, will quickly state their own opinions and they will practice their own lifestyle. They will follow their precepts of men, but they are not going to be motivated to do anything good because it's according to God's law or done for his glory. You see, that's the very last reason why they would want to do anything considered good. If it was because it was according to his law or done for his glory, they say, forget that, I'll do it for this and this reason, but not because it's God's will or according to his glory. Indeed, God is detestable in their sight. But you, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, having been redeemed from all lawlessness by Jesus Christ, And being purified for himself, Paul says, to be his own possession. Let us press on zealously with hearts of true faith, with a law of God inscribed not merely on tablets of stone, but on the very tablet of our heart, and thus doing good works. For the glory of God and for the praise of his holy name forever. Amen.